Well, we want to encourage you now to turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. We'll be taking a little bit of a break from our expositional study of the book of Romans in order to address a number of areas. Practical areas in the subject of biblical counseling. Biblical counseling and counseling others. And so, one of the passages in... Uh, approaching the subject of biblical counseling, the approach and principles and things like that, comes from Galatians 6. Galatians chapter 6, and we'll be reading from verses 1 through 5. Galatians chapter 6, and actually we'll be starting perhaps at the Last verse of chapter 5, verse 26, 526, and reading through verse 5 in Galatians. And how Paul writes this book to the church at Galatia. And after encouraging them to bear the fruit of the Spirit, he says in verse 26, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. 6 verse 1. Brethren, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work and when... And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer before we begin. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. For it provides for us a light unto our path. Wisdom for living. And as your word says through Peter, contains everything that we need for a life of godliness. So, Father, may we look and see how your word contains truth for our everyday lives and problems. May you open our eyes that we might see great and mighty things we do not yet know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned before, we'll be taking a little bit of a break. Book of Romans. We've been going through Romans and we've come to a very fascinating passage in Romans 8.29 having to do with predestination and election and things like that. But we're going to hold that off until probably October when we will re take up that subject and go on to chapter 9, but we're going to be covering uh, something that is perhaps very practical, and it is about the subject of biblical counseling or counseling others. We'll be looking at a number of areas, but primarily three, and today I want to paint a picture for you about the philosophy and what's out there today when it comes to counseling and helping others. And then we'll look at the scriptures, biblical approaches, and then we'll be covering a number of practical problems that you and I face every day. People that we come into, people that have everyday problems, and how we can look at the scriptures and see what the scriptures say to various practical issues that we face. But I want to tell you about the philosophy of of counseling today to begin with. It perhaps is summarized by a story I read recently about when they were building St. Petersburg. 
St. Petersburg is one of the most splendid and, and harmonious cities in Europe. When they were building that city, the city planners were laying the city out in the 18th century. And there were a number of boulders that had been brought in from, uh, by glaciers way back when, by fin- through Finland. And these boulders had to be removed from the city. And so there was one particularly large rock, you see, in the path of all of the boulders that were there. It was in the path of a principal avenue or a principal street, right in the middle of the street. And they had to decide, now, how in the world were they going to get rid of this boulder? And so they solicited a number of bids from people. And these bids to remove this large boulder from this mainline street that they were building was going to be very, very, under, very, very uh, uh, expensive. Now, you have to understand, back in the 18th century, they didn't have high explosives. They didn't have some of the modern tools and things like that to just blow this rock to pieces, etc. It was going to be very time-consuming. It was going to be very expensive. But then here comes this peasant up to the city officials, and this peasant submits a bid that is quite a bit lower, quite a bit cheaper than all of the rest. And so the city officials were just scratching their heads, wondering what this peasant was going to do. And they said, well, what have we got to lose? So they decided to hire the cheapest guy they could find. When they accepted his bid, the next day he came out with a whole bunch of other peasants. And they were all, they were all excited because they were going to be able to make some money. And they all were carrying shovels. So what they did was they propped this boulder up on a, a little bit of uh, some timber. And they all began digging And they dug this huge hole right next to the boulder. And then afterwards, the the hole was dug. They took the timber out and they let the rock just fall into the hole. And then they covered it up and hauled the dirt away. So far, no more problem. No more boulder. The street was level. Everything was fine. That is how they got the boulder out of the main street in St. Petersburg when that city was built. But the fact of the matter is, that's how it is with many people. We have a problem in life. Boulders that are right in the middle of the main thoroughfare of where we're wanting to go, what we're wanting to do, and we seem to have a problem. They plop themselves right in the middle of our life and we try our best to do what? To just cover them up. To hide them. And oftentimes people will approach their problems trying to solve them in the easiest way possible, the cheapest way possible, the least painful way possible. And there it is, hidden underneath the surface, right underneath everything else, not dealing with the issues that they have in life. Not only do you see people have problems with ourselves, but we know plenty of people with problems. Other people, our friends, our spouse, our kids, they have problems in life as well. In fact, many people go and see counselors for these. You know, there was a Newsweek article uh, that was a front cover story entitled Freud's Not Dead. And talked about how people in America, you know, roughly what, 260 million people in America today? When they did a survey in the recent Newsweek poll, they surveyed a nearly 20%. Nearly 20% of all Americans, all American adults, have had some form of therapy or counseling. Do you realize how many people that is? And then you, you look, and this has 4% in this survey are currently in therapy or counseling. And another 20 have to have taken medicine for anxiety or depression. you realize that? 4% are nearly are in counseling right now. 
and the issues that they face in life. Out of 250, 260 million people, how many does that amount to? Oh, some maybe 10, 11 million people right now in America. So what do these people do? Some for, look for a counselor. Whom do they go to? Whom do they go to? If you're a Christian, you have several choices. Christians go to a various choices of counselors when they get help. One of the categories, there are three main categories of types of counselors that exist. You can go to a, a secular, humanistic type of philosophy and counseling and see a very a secular psychologist. Or you could see a psychiatrist. The difference between the two is that a psychiatrist can prescribe medicines for you. Well, you can go see one of those, but when you do, I'll tell you what. It's really a shotgun approach because depending upon their training and what they decide to apply to your life, they can decide, well, you know what, I like the behavioral cognitive therapy which would include rational emotive therapies or behaviorism. Adlerian individual psychology. Or they can say, well, you know what? I'm a dynamic therapy type of a counselor promoted by Carl Jung. Analytic psychotherapy or classical psychoanalysis by Freud. Or they can say, well, you know, I'm a humanistic therapy. I like gestalt therapy or existential analysis or logotherapy or person-centered therapy that is Rogerian. Or they can say, well, you know what, I don't like to spend 150, 200 bob bucks an hour getting counseling. What I'm going to do is I think I'll just turn on the TV at night and watch Dr. Phil. And I'm going to like uh, maybe listen to Oprah. Because they've got some very uh, interesting people that have problems and issues there. But it's really a shotgun approach. When one goes to see a secular psychologist or see a psychiatrist, because depending upon what they decide to do, there are, there's been a survey of over 250 different distinct schools of psychotherapy that exist. 250 or more different ways to treat human symptoms in an approach. And one doesn't really know what works and what doesn't work. It all depends. Well, if this doesn't work, we'll try that. And then there's a second category of people that one can go to, and that is a Christian psychologist. A Christian psychologist. And that's somewhat of an oxymoron, in my opinion. There are many Christians who name the name of Christ and yet adhere to a psychology or psychotherapy that has a little bit of theology kind of sprinkled in there. I remember talking with one friend of mine who is, who is a, a Christian psychologist who would argue the all-too-common theme of, well, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about many of the problems that we face today. And we need this because it is just so important to have these solutions. And that's the problem there. Because they look not to the Word of God, but they look towards secular, humanistic psychology. And it's not unheard of in my experience to have people having gone to some type of counseling from a Christian psychologist. Never to hear that psychologist or that counselor to say, we should pray. Or do you know what the Lord says about this particular issue? Or... I want you to look to God because God provides hope. No. It's basically their training is such that it is in secular psychology with just a little bit of theology sprinkled in. The category of Christian psychologists is sometimes called integrationists. 
integrationists because they attempt to integrate psychology and philosophies of the world with theology, bringing them to pass. Now, that's not to say, and I don't want to be misunderstood, that's not to say that psychology has no merit. There have been myriads of studies correlations, observations, cause-effect relationships that have been very helpful to our understanding, medical studies even, that have helped people in many ways. But when it comes to the identification and the prescription of people's problems that are not biological or not medically related, problems of the heart and soul and mind and spirit, where the Word of God provides for us the answer, there is a problem. When it comes to the solutions that man provides, they're in, they're, in, they're in contention with the Word of God. For the problems of the heart, soul, and mind that the Word of God speaks to, that it transforms us. You see, you picture it this way. If you needed help and you wanted to go find a counselor, let's say you open up the phone book. And you open up the phone book and that. Uh, And there you see a big ad. And it says, Jesus Christ. And you say, I've heard of that man. I think he has some answers. And so you go dial him up, make an appointment. You go to the office of Jesus Christ. And there Jesus is sitting. There Jesus is sitting. And and he's asking you, what can I do for you? And you describe to him your problem. What kind of counsel do you think that he's going to give you? What kind of help do you think Jesus is going to give you? Is he going to say, well, let me see here. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take one of these Prozac every day. Or I'd like you, well, if that doesn't work, you could try Zoloft or Paxil and and be sure. And by the way, when you do that, if you could, uh, by the way, tell me what you think uh, this this ink blot reminds you of. Or, you know, you really shouldn't be like that. Don't blame yourself because you didn't have a childhood that, that others did. Or perhaps, you, you, you know, what really is the problem, you see, is that you need to get in touch with your inner child. Or is Jesus going to say, you know what, it's really not your fault. You've got, to, you've, you've got to just not have any guilt about this or whatever it might be. I don't think so. Jesus wouldn't give that kind of counsel if he were sitting behind a desk. Jesus would say instead, listen to my wisdom and my counsel for you. Go to God and believe that the power of the counselor which I have sent to you, the counselor which is a different one, the Spirit of God can help you. Ask me and I will help you. Remember what I have said? Remember what I have said that you ought to fill your mind with? Remember what I said about you, what you ought to meditate on day and night? Trust me. I will take care of everything for you. And living in the sphere of trusting God. You know, trusting God is a major, major, major solution to people's problems over anxiety, over worry. Trusting God for the future, that God is a God who is in control. And that's where we come to this third area that one can receive counseling from. Receive counseling from a biblical counselor. One that that relies on the Word of God for our issues and our problems. Sometimes it's called nuthetic counseling. And it comes from the word admonish. When the Bible says admonish one another. It says in the Bible, what? In Romans chapter 15 verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, Paul says, I'm convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. Filled with all knowledge and also able to admonish one another. 
Or it says in Colossians, what? Rich, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. I mean, let the word of God richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Nutheteo. What does that mean? It means if somebody has a difficulty or they're not walking with God, admonishing them means to place within their mind the thoughts of God. To help them to think along the thoughts of God. To correct them. To in gentleness, to teach them and to admonish, to correct them and say, you know what, I think that God wouldn't be pleased. I think that the Lord would desire that we do this. And that's what admonishing, the whole idea admonishing means. And that is a command. We are to admonish one another. For a biblical counselor believes in the Word of God that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, as the Word of God says. It believes that the Spirit of God is powerful within the life of the believer. It believes in the Word of God that through prayer and the Word of God, He can change our hearts and our minds and transform us that we might have contentment, be free from worry, be free from anxiety as we learn the truth of who God is. For often times we have a view of God that is so small. And that is why we look to all of these other solutions to fill the void that is in the heart. But when God comes forth, He says what? When we look in the book of 2 Peter, if you're turning your Bibles, 2 Peter verses 3 of chapter 1. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. This is what God says. It is not my word. It is not anybody's word. It is the word of God that says this. And he says grace and peace in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus Christ our Lord. Seeing that his what? Divine power. The power of Jesus has given to us, it says... Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. You want a life that is a life that is alive and godly? Somebody who has a problem, they're struggling with an issue or whatever. Or they're struggling with how to overcome this particular uh, quote unquote habit, a sinful habit or addiction or whatever they've got that is non-medically or non-biologically related, there is sometimes what they call various addictions or whatever, God has an answer. God has an answer. You want to live a godly life? God has provided for us. And the Word of God says He has provided for us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And in the coming weeks, we'll see some of those solutions to everyday life problems. But true biblical counseling looks at it like this. If one approaches somebody else and somebody else is struggling with an issue, the first thing you do is you need to identify, you need to identify where this person is with God. Because if they do not know God, the Word of God says what about them? That their eyes have been blinded, that they are children of wrath, or that they are enemies of God. That's what it says in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. It says what? That they are against God and their hearts are, are closed to God. Ultimately, what they need is they need the Lord Jesus. They need the Lord Jesus. They need to hear the gospel of salvation. They need the power of the Spirit of God to help them in their issues of life. Because there are so many people who struggle with the issues of life and yet have not the power of the Spirit of God to help them. 
For even Jesus said, when I leave, I will send to you what? A counselor. A counselor. A counselor, Jesus says, he's going to send to help us to live that godly life that we ought to live. And if a person doesn't know Christ, then sure, approach them and help them with their immediate issues or whatever. But you do it with the goal of leading them to know Christ as their Savior. That is your goal. And if a person is a believer, if a person is a Christian, and they have the resources of the Holy Spirit, of the Word of God, then your goal is to help them to grow in godliness so they can be more like Christ. You know what people seek for today when they have an issue or a problem? They have an issue or a problem, they just want that problem to go away, don't they? You and I all want that. Man, you know, that, that boss is whatever. That boss is just so hard on me. Or that teacher is very unreasonable. He picks on me in class all the time. And boy, it wouldn't it be simpler if I just had a different boss, or if I had a different teacher, or if I had a different spouse, or if I had a child who would behave. We wish it would go away, but many times the change that God desires is what? A change in us. A change in us. That we might be more godly and respond in a godly way to our everyday problems. So we help the Christian to grow in Christ-likeness. And ultimately we desire that those who don't know Christ be one to Christ. So what do we look for? What should we look for when we have issues in life? Should we look for a secular psychologist or secular psychiatrist who's going to say, well, why don't you take these pills, look at these ink blots or whatever it might be. Why don't we go off to this camp like I had a friend go to, a camp that's going to regress and you deal with all of the issues in your, in your past and then you come out of this camp. Little or nothing is said about God. Is that what we look for? Is that the solution to our problems? Or do we go and believe the Word of God which says His divine power has granted to us, He's given to us, everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And again, I'm not speaking of things that have to do when someone has a, a, a medical issue or a biological issue. Those, of course, you tell them, you go and see a doctor and they'll help you with those particular issues. But God has provided for us spiritual power. Today, though, unfortunately, most people turn to secular philosophies, don't they? They turn to secular philosophies and they listen to Dr. Phil or whoever. If you're not, marriage is not working out. You know, I watch Dr. Phil once in a while. I watch him so I can see what's being out there. And, you know, I was watching Oprah the other day simply because I'm curious to know what people are saying. I don't watch it every night or every week. I don't go home. Oh, boy, Dr. Phil is on. I need help. But I listen, and you'll say, you know what? If this marriage is not working out for you, you ought, to, you ought to consider getting a divorce. Or the other night he was saying, you know what? You can do something about your body. You don't like your body. It makes you feel a certain way. There are various means for plastic surgery. I thought the person looked perfectly normal. They look like everybody else. Not quite like me, but they look like everybody else. Solutions sometimes are not cosmetic. Do you see what I mean? They're of the heart. Why doesn't this person like themselves? And sometimes he'll address that, sometimes he won't. But it's a hodgepodge of things. But every Christian, even Christians, you see, when they don't understand and know what the Scriptures say about our issues, about our problems, how to solve them or whatnot, they'll turn to these things because it sure sounds very sensible. 
And some of the advice is good. I'm not saying again it's all bad, but some of it is just the conclusions that they come to. The conclusions that they come to that run contrary to the Word of God are just not right. So it's disturbing, but that's our world and our culture today. And that's a picture of the times in which we live. So let's look at our text today as we look into the book of Galatians. For it gives us here four principles the Bible gives us when counseling others who are caught in sin. This has to do with those who are Christians. And you see another Christian brother or sister caught in a sin. It says here, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. The first principle that God desires that we do when we come to counsel others is to seek to restore others. To seek to restore others. We seek to restore others. It says if anyone is caught in a trespass, you are spiritual, restore such a one. It says somebody is caught in a sin. Maybe you see them. Maybe you catch them in a sin. Maybe it's your son or daughter. You know, they're, they're, trying to, they're doing something they shouldn't do. And you catch them in that act. And you call them to the floor, so to speak. Or maybe somebody is inadvertently walking along and they're not intending to do something, but then temptation takes them and they end up in some place that they shouldn't be. And they're caught in sin. Or say, begin to develop a little habit, a little bad attitude, a little bit of a complaining. Every day they come home and it's becoming more irritating. And at the dinner table, what they do, they'll just start complaining about the same old person. Or they're complaining about their friend. Or they're complaining about their teacher. And this attitude becomes more and more pervasive. And it becomes habitual. And it begins to become gossip. And gossip in some families begins the way that they teach. And all they do, perhaps, is that they talk about other people at the dinner table. And that type of gossip and slander and things like that can be so habitual, you don't even realize that it is wrong. Maybe they're caught in that type of a sin. What's the goal? It says, brethren, those who are Christians, if a person is caught in any trespass, it says what? You help them. For a Christian, you help to restore. The idea is to restore. And a picture is a broken bone that is placed back into the right place. If you break your leg, you, you, your, 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 your bone will be realigned so that it's restored. Maybe it's a, a Christian you see that has done something. They're cheating in school or they're stealing from their workplace or they're, they're unfaithful to their spouse or maybe they're neglecting their kids or using foul language or maybe they're in a relationship with a non-Christian such they shouldn't be uh, in that committed relationship. And commonly, what do people do? Nothing. Oh, that's their business. Who am I to say anything? I don't think I'm the right person. But I do know the right person. Pastor Joe, will you go talk to so-and-so? Because, you know, they really shouldn't be doing that. How often have I heard that? I mean, I tell you, people just don't say anything. Oh, I want them, what, to, 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 to change. Yeah, but it's just, I don't know. I just don't want to say anything. And often the real reason is fear. Is fear. Fear that they'll reject you. Fear that they won't like you. Fear of losing the friendship if you say anything about them living in the trespass or the sin that is there. Fear of, of seeing somebody and then, uh, and then saying something and then they don't, they, don't, they don't respond in the right way. Having such a fear is even, is even pervasive in parenting. I mean, some parents don't discipline or don't, don't say anything. Why? 
I don't want my child to reject me. I don't want them to not love me. I don't want them to, 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 to think badly of me. But they want, they need, they need those boundaries that are built in for them. The Bible never tells us. The instruction here is be silent, don't say anything, go tell your pastor or whatever. But it does say here, you who are spiritual, you who are spiritual, it means what? It means to look to see, are you walking with God? Do you have a log in your own eye first? And if you do, you take that little log out of your own eye or that big log out of your own eye first. It means you don't come across as judgmental, that you're some super spiritual person. But the phrase guards us against self-righteousness, against being the Gestapo of, of, of Christendom and correcting others always. But it does tell us, once we've done that, restore such a one. You see someone caught in some habit or pattern and you call, come to them and you say something. You restore them. If your son or daughter or whatever, or, or, your, or your brother or your sister, let's say they're hooked on drugs. Let's say they're snorting cocaine or taking drugs. I was watching a Nightline the other night. They have this little thing called, uh, uh, they, they throw all these drugs in these parties into a little bowl. They call it trail mix. All of these over-the-counter drugs or all these prescription drugs, they throw it there and teens will go during these dances or whatever and just take a handful, whatever is in there, and they take it. And it gives them a high. If you found out that your son or daughter was doing that, you would say something, wouldn't you? You would say something. Why? Because you know it's going to hurt them. You know it's going to cause them even perhaps to die. You know it's terrible for them. And you're willing to risk your relationship with them to tell them that they need to get off of drugs. You're going to risk your time. You're going to spend money or whatever it is to get them away because you know it will damage and hurt and maybe even kill them. And so too sin does to our lives. Sin does to our lives as we see a brother or a sister in Christ engaging in a pattern of a, an attitude sometimes. An attitude. They give you this bad attitude. They come across with this. Maybe as some people say they, they, the, the, the things that they say. As one parent says that they give you lip. They talk about things. Or maybe well, some people have a bad habit of using foul language or whatever it might be. You talk to them about it. You confront them about it. Why? Because you care. You see somebody who is offensive or whatever. You don't say to yourself, oh boy, I'll let my kid take drugs because I don't want to lose them. No, you've already, you're losing them. In just the same way, you see a brother or sister walking in the wrong way, doing their own thing. You know what? They're, they might not respond properly, but you have a responsibility. The Bible says if you see it, then you go and you do restore them. Bring them back and say, and turn them around. So they'll walk rightly with God. And the aim is not to criticize them or to judge them or to kick them or condemn them or punch them when they're down. The aim is that they walk rightly with God. If you are, for instance, if you're a student here or you're living under the house of your, under the roof of your parents, when your parents punish you or discipline you, or they ground you for some reason, more often than not, it's because they care about you. They don't want you to have foolish decisions. They don't want you to have a, a, a life that is going down the wrong way. You might feel that they're way too hard on you. Of course, so. uh, someday when you're, you're a parent, you're going to be the same way. You know, and they care about you and even God desires us to walk in the right way and He disciplines us. And so, 
We look and we see our responsibility is to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And that's the first thing. To take note and see what are other people going through and what can I do to help. I need to help. That's my responsibility. There are other things too. Three other points that we're going to come and cover in the coming weeks. That of having a spirit of gentleness, carrying the burdens of others, having a humble attitude. But let me encourage you, if you're having problems in life or you're helping other people with problems, there is always hope. There is always hope to change. Because why? You're a child of God. And you have the power of God within your life. And the word of God, which it says, is a light unto your path. That he has given to you everything you need to live a godly life. And God has answers to the problems of your life, not you. Just as the poet says, Lord, I've never moved a mountain and I guess I never will. And the faith that I could muster wouldn't move a small anthill. Yet I'll tell you, Lord, I'm grateful for the joy of knowing you and for all the mountain moving down through life you've done for me. When I needed some help, you lifted me from the depths of great despair. And when burdens, pain and sorrow have been more than I can bear, you've always been my courage to restore life's troubled sea and to move these little mountains that have looked so big to me. Many times when I've had problems and when bills I've had to pay and the worries and the heartaches just kept mounting every day, Lord, I don't know how you did it. Can't explain the wheres or whys. All I know, I've seen these mountains turn to blessings in disguise. No, I've never moved a mountain for my faith is far too small. And yet I thank thee, Lord of heaven. You've always heard my call. And as long as there are mountains in my life, I'll have no fear. For the mountain-moving Jesus is my strength and always near. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, how there are mountains in our lives. How there are boulders, boulders, Lord, that are in the major roadways as we travel along in life. How we see some of these things as great and Immovable, But Father, it is you who says, call to me and I will simply remove them for you. And yet, Father, we desire oftentimes to simply dig a hole and to cover up our problems. And yet, Lord, we know that it is still lurking there underneath our roadway. So we pray, O God, that you would cause us to turn to you in our difficulties in life. To call upon you, for your word has the answer. May we seek you, your counsel, your wisdom. And may you, Father, cause us to grow in godliness. In Jesus' name we pray.